You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. We've heard over the last few weeks how, as a teenage girl, an orphan, a Jewish girl, Esther, God grabbed hold of her life. And now we're coming to the climax of the story where she gets to use the influence that God has given her, the experiences that God has given her, to truly make an impact. Which brings us nicely into looking at chapter 5 of Esther this morning. I've called this um, talk Biblical Eats. Yeah, you may have heard of Uber Eats. We've got one even better, something bigger than Uber. Biblical, it's better, it's bigger. And this week we're going to look at food as a topic. A, a subject dear to my heart. You're in for a treat. Um, let's recap quickly on the story so far. So the story of Esther takes place roughly 500 years before the birth of Jesus. Um, we've heard of the King Xerxes, who is the most powerful man on the planet at this point in time. And he rules and reigns from a city called Susa. We heard how it, actually Susa and London, 21st century London, have a lot of parallels. They have significant influence in the world. It's where the corridors of power sit. And we saw how Esther was raised up from um, an orphaned Jewish girl to the queen of the land, a powerful leader, as we'll come to see. Esther wins the king's favor, and he chooses her as her queen, or his queen. And we see how, um, over the last couple of weeks, where um, this position of influence is going to become very useful indeed, in saving the Jewish people. We saw a man called Haman who rises to power, who really hates another man called Morkadai. Morkadai is the uncle of Esther. And not just dealing with Morkadai, he decides, this man Haman, to not only deal with Morkadai, but to wipe out the entire Jewish race which Morkadai is part of. And somehow he manages to get into law this day at the end of the year where it's legal in the entire world to kill a Jew. It's hard to believe that it got through, but somehow there's this, this law. So the Jewish people are living with this genocide threat that is coming at the end of the year. And Morkadai takes it upon himself to petition Esther to do something about this. Use the position that you found yourself in. Mediate before the king and save the people. And last week we learned how um, Pete explained how Esther was the perfect mediator, both both royalty and Jewish, and how that's a picture of how Jesus is the perfect mediator for us, both God and man. And we came to understand how all this story points to the one, the great mediator, Jesus. And that's where it was left. Esther, about to walk into the throne room of the king. Knowing that, actually, if this goes bad, it will be death for her. Because you're not allowed to just walk into the throne room of the king. So let's pick the story up in chapter 5. You can read along with me if you'd like to. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters. Whilst the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room 
opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in your sight, in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I've prepared for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Morkadai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Morkadai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, um, Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Morkadai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zevesh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Morkadai hanged upon it. Then go joyful with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So, Esther is about to walk into the throne room. It starts with this phrase, on the third day, which is not a coincidence. There's some incredible things that happen in the Bible on the third day. I'm sure you're thinking of Jesus rising from the dead. That's definitely one of them. But there are others. The third day of creation is the day that God created the seed-bearing plants. And we know what happens to seed. Seed falls into the ground And it's a picture of resurrection and new life being born. Third days are when David wins a lot of his battles recorded in the book of Samuel. These are momentous occasions throughout the Bible. So when a verse begins with on the third day, you know something incredible is about to happen. So the scene is set. I wonder what happens. Well, according to historical records, the throne room of the king was an incredibly magnificent place. It had 36 pillars, 65 feet high. And from anywhere within the throne room, wherever you stood, you had a direct line of sight view to the king sitting on his throne. In fact, we don't hear lots about what Xerxes were up to apart from 
at feasts and sitting on his throne. This is one of his favorite things to do, where he can act out a kind of demigod, a little god ruling his kingdom from his throne. It was a comfortable place for him to be. Now, Esther dressed up in royal robes to show respect and honor to the king. She was showing great wisdom here. She wasn't going to just rush in. She was going to do everything she could to prepare for going before the king. She takes a deep breath, knowing that literally this is a life and death moment. And she walked in. As she walks in, walks in, she catches the eye of the king. And the king is pleased. And she finds favor in his sight. And he holds out the golden scepter to signify that you are welcome to come close to the king. What do you want? I don't know about you at this point in the story. You're thinking, this is it. She's come in. She's not going to be killed. She's not having her head chopped off. She's touched the golden scepter. The king's looking her in the eyes. What do you want? All she needs to say is, please don't kill my people. Yet, that's not what she asked for. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a meal. Has she completely missed her opportunity here? Well, I think there's more wisdom going on here than maybe we would first see. We learned in chapter 4, the... um, last week, that actually the queen and the king hadn't seen each other for over a month. Now, when we hear um, husband and wife imagery, we imagine them living together, being in each other's worlds. But that was not the culture of the day. The king would have his end of the palace, and the queen and the harem, which we've, we've heard about, which could be up to a thousand uh, other women, lived in the other end of the palace. And it would be up to the king to dictate the terms on which the queen and and any other of the women would come into his presence. And Esther hadn't seen him for a month. So she knew that, okay, to put this on the table, by the way, I'm a Jew and uh, I'll mortgage my uncle and don't kill us, was a lot to take the king on a journey when he hadn't seen her for a month. So I thought, I know, let's have a meal instead and begin to build relationship back into um, the the wife and husband relationship. Esther knew the power of meals. Life happens in meals. And in fact, you can trace the whole Bible in meals as well. Um, Right at creation, God says to Adam and Eve, here's a garden, you can eat of any of the tree apart from the knowledge of good and evil. I... I have pictures of, um, in my mind's eye, where it talks about God coming down and walking in the cool of the evening. Maybe you've been on holiday recently. You know what it's like to be in a, a warmer climate and that cool of the evening. You don't tend to eat when it's hot. You let the, the cool of the evening come down and you wander and you, you, you maybe have a meze if you're in the Mediterranean or, or wh- wherever you are and you enjoy food together, quality time together. I, in my mind's eye, I have this image of God walking with Adam and Eve in the evening, going up to a tree. Have you tried oranges yet? Oh, no. Picking an orange, sharing it with them. Have you tried a peach? No, then walk off to another tree and try that. It's, it's enjoying time, fellowship together. We hear a few chapters later in, in um, Genesis of Noah, um, after God brings Noah through the flood and he saves that family and humankind gets to live on, on the planet Earth. 
God says to Noah, okay, not just the trees now, you can eat the animals as well. And barbecue was invented. Thank you, Lord. Again, I wonder what, what animal would they try first? I wonder, I hope it wasn't an armadillo, maybe chicken. That's why everything tastes like chicken. It was, it's great. Yeah, well. um, I'm sure there was years of fun of, of, of trying different meats. Um, a little later, we hear the story of Moses. We know that meal which took them out of slavery in Egypt, the Passover meal. It's the meal that the story of the Jewish people remember. That's the one, that meal, that was the one that saved us. And, of course, as Christians, we remember the Last Supper every single week here at Redeemer. We share communion together, and we remember Jesus, what he's about to do on that night, and what he has done now for us. And ultimately, there's a marriage feast that we all get invited to at the end of time and history that we get to enjoy. It talks about the the finest wines and the the best meats and enjoying a time of fellowship with God and with Jesus. And I don't know about you, I am looking forward to that meal. So history can be um, mapped out in meals. Um, And I, I think the power of meals is really easy to underestimate. When we eat with others, our posture changes. We relax. You get the real us. It may take half an hour or so as we just settle in. We maybe enjoy some wine and and, and just get comfortable. But that's where you really make friends. That's where the real business is done in life. It's over meals. There's a a TV um, series on at the moment called Eden. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on Channel 4. And the concept is um, these guys here, there's a few more than can fit in the photo. They're trying to build um, fresh a new community. And what you realize when you watch this show is how important meals are to the community. Their entire existence is built around mealtimes where they communally come together and they eat together. They may go off and build things independently, but mealtimes are the, the fulcrum of their relationship. In fact, there's a couple of guys that decide to go and build their own shelter at one point and start eating outside of the community. And very quickly, the relationship changes where they're outside of the community. And they realize this and they start coming back to eating together. Meals are incredibly important. So what about Redeemer? Well, I'd love us to be known as a church that knows what it is to feast together to share meals together, to just enjoy one another's company around a meal table. I think it's one of the very best ways for us to love one another, to get to know one another. Um, That's why over the month of August, we have arranged a barbecue every single week. I don't know what your plans are this afternoon, but change them. Come to the barbecue. We're going to hang out together, and we're going to have real conversations. Yeah, you may have felt like you've caught up with people over coffee, but I guarantee you, over a sausage and a, I don't know what's on the menu, some, some other salad creation, I'm sure, um, you'll have much deeper conversations because there's something about sharing a meal together. Um, Shelley and I recently took some friends of ours out for a meal in central London. Um, recently with CJ, we haven't had to do, uh, or haven't had the opportunity to do that very often. Um, so we took the opportunity. And when we invited our friends to, to that, they said, oh, what's the occasion? Right. 
There's no occasion. We just want to hang out with you. We love your company. We love your presence. When was the last time you had someone over or took someone out for a meal just to get to know them a little bit better? I'd love as a church that that was the thing that Ealing knew us for. If you hang around with those guys more than a couple of weeks, you'll get invited to hang out over a meal. In fact, there was a, there was a young lad I chatted to who had been in Redeemer um, a couple of months, uh, first time I met him over coffee. And um, I asked him, how have, you, how have you felt settling in? And he looked at me. And he said, you don't really know anyone until you've eaten with them. <laughs> and <laughs> the tragedy was he hadn't been invited anywhere. And I, I I was absolutely gutted to hear that. And that's not to shame us, because I think actually we do quite a good job at community and inviting people to meals. But it just shows we can do even better job. My dream is no one walks through that door without an invitation to a meal in the first couple of weeks of coming to Redeemer. Um, not only as a church does that build community, but there's something about our city. There's a, a trend, which I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, let me show you this. This is a single-serving ready meal. If you go to a Tesco Express or any of the, um, the smaller supermarket shops, you will notice a proliferation of these type of products. What is going on in our society? This is, I work late, and on the way home, I get a meal for one, and I put it in the microwave, and I eat on my own. And that's my life. What better way is it to win our city than to show through meals the love of Jesus? Where these type of products don't exist anymore because there's no one eating on their own um, with a microwave meal. That, I mean, as a mission statement, to, um, to not, not have people eat on their own ever again, that would, be, that would be wonderful. So what's going on in the story with Esther? She's trying to build relationship back with her husband. And she's also keeping an eye on Haman. She's um, got this meal. The wine is flowing at the end of the meal. And again, the king turns to Esther. And he knows, look, you didn't certainly risk your life just to invite me to a meal. There must be something else going on here. And the king looks Esther in the eye and says, again, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. And Esther says, you know what, I'd love you to come back for another meal tomorrow. And you're thinking, really? Really? This is your strategy, Esther? But she is very patient. And actually, what you eat and how you eat it and who you eat it with reveals more about your heart than a lot of other things. And what we're seeing here with Esther is she is displaying fruits of the Spirit just overflowing into her life at this point. There's grace and there's patience and there's love and there's joy and there's peace and kindness and goodness. The way she eats is displaying who she really is and that's a child of God. She's coming into a maturing relationship with God. She's learning to tune into his will rather than just go with the flow. Remember that earlier Esther? She just did what Morkadai said. She just did what the king said. She just did what the eunuch said, went with the flow. She's becoming a very powerful leader. She's speaking out and not being silent. She's active, not being passive. And she's taking a risk, which is faith. Esther has received a new identity. This is a different Esther at this point in the story than 
the Esther that we met a few chapters ago. She now sees herself as a child of God and eats accordingly. For this situation, it involved um, a life and death ask, an invitation to a meal, and then to be patient to ask for another meal. What's certain from the story of Esther is how she's eaten in the past doesn't define her destiny. Being a child of God does. Let's look at Haman for a second. So here we've really got two um, characters that we're comparing. We've just heard about Esther. Let's zoom into Haman. He's the villain in the story. He's the guy that has arranged this genocide for all of the Jews at the end of the year. Now I want you to imagine for a minute that you've received an invitation to dinner from the queen. How do you feel? How do you feel? You've got that letter. It's got the royal uh, crown on the top. You must think, wow, this is going to be a pretty special event. Well, it's not unusual for people to be invited to Buckingham Palace for a meal. In fact, last year, for the Queen's 90th birthday, several thousand people got invited to Buckingham Palace and the overflowing area as a celebration um, of the Queen. However, now let's imagine for a minute, it was an invitation from Liz and Phil, just to hang out for an evening, over a meal. How do you begin to feel now? I think you feel quite special. That's exactly how Haman was feeling at this point in time. He'd suddenly been invited into the inner circle, into the the royal center, just with the queen and the king hanging out for an evening. And not only for one evening, he's got an invitation to come back tomorrow. Haman is the guy that can't wait to get the selfie with the queen and the king out to his friends, to brag about the position he's found himself in. He's the kind of guy which is all about appearances as opposed to depth. So what does he choose to eat and how does he choose to eat it and who does he choose to eat it with? It's completely based on how he can build this external perception of the successful man that Haman is. We all, I'm sure, slip into this trap at different points. The image that we project, maybe through social media or the comments that we drop into conversations Haman might be um, a villain that has arranged genocide and be hard to relate to on a lot of levels, because I'm sure none of us are in that category. However, there's definitely little images that we see in Haman which we can relate to personally. And over the meal, he just drops his guard a bit. I'm sure he's feeling quite safe at this point. He's in the inner circle. And on the way home from the meal, he can't wait to tell his friends all about what's just happened. He sees Morkadai, who is the guy he hates, at the gate, not respecting him anymore. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were Morkadai, and you had um, single-handedly to blame for the genocide of your people, you'd be doing a bit more to try and make up with the guy that, that um, wrote that law. Morkadai's having none of it. He's, he's not playing ball at all. Um, in fact, I think he's enjoying the, the wind-up of Haman a little bit at this point. And Haman is absolutely furious. He's gone from joy to hate in a split second. He holds it enough together to get home, because he really wants to brag about the evening that he's just been on. 
gathers his friends together, says, hey guys, you would never believe what happened tonight. I had dinner with the king and queen, just the three of us. Check out Chelsea. Yeah, that's... Yet, Morkadai was at the gate, and I hate that guy. He's, he's always there, and he's winding me up, and I know, I know I'm dealing with him by the, I want it dealt with now. And one of the friends puts their hand in the air and says, you know what, I've got an idea. Why don't you build a massive set of gallows? I mean, the, the, the measurements here, it's huge, because he's all about appearance, and he wants people to see. And we'll hang him in the morning. And that's where the story of Haman kind of hangs in the air. Now, I know, again, Haman, it's a a difficult character to kind of relate to. So let me give you a more real-world example of someone whose life is dominated by a drive for status and achievement. This is one of my sporting heroes, Bradley Wiggins. I don't know about you, but um, watching him win, win the gold medal with the team pursuit just a few nights ago was incredible. Now the most decorated sports um, Olympian, British Olympian in the history of our country. Um, I've loved reading his books over the years. And um, there's a recent documentary which just came out, which was The Road to Rio, which was all about Bradley Wiggins working for this moment for the last four years. On the surface, there's a lot to respect there. Yet, here's in his own words um, how he feels. Just to be mentioned in the same breath of Sir Steve Redgrave and Sir Chris Hoy is an, abs- is an absolute honour. To be up there with those guys as a British Olympian is very special. The important number is four. This is pre him winning the fifth gold medal. And I've got to carry on to Rio now and go for number five. What's he saying? Well, if you watch the documentary, you know, or read any of his books, you know that The life of Bradley Wiggins is one that is incredible highs and incredible lows. Um, In the last four years between winning the gold medals at the uh, London Olympics and the Tour de France, he was on an incredible low. In other words, his whole life is about achieving the gold. Now, I don't know what the next few years looks like for Bradley, but I can guarantee you he won't be satisfied with only five golds. There's more to come in the story of Wiggins. Um, like probably all our lives, the things we run after, the things we really want to eat, they don't truly satisfy. In fact, the only way to be truly satisfied is to eat at the table of the one who offers the bread of life. Time and time again, we see Jesus eating with his friends, making time to eat a meal with Uh, tax collectors or uh, the woman at the well or several thousand people who showed up. He loved to build relationship with people and to eat together. There's one meal in particular which we remember every Sunday and that's the Last Supper. That moment when Jesus dropped his guard for an evening and really explained what was going to happen in the next 48 hours to his closest friends. Luke 22, 19 to 20 tells the story. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you 
is the new covenant in my cup, in my blood. You see, my cup isn't worthy to go into the throne room of the king. Think of all the things which go in your cup. Everything you've ever done wrong. Everything you've ever thought wrong. All of the things which separate us from God. And then you're asked to walk into the throne room of God knowing there's a life and death decision. I don't know about you, but I don't want to walk in there with my cup. What Jesus is saying is, I take your cup and I drink it, and you get my cup. And it's like Esther putting on the royal robes, about to walk into the throne room. There's nothing wrong with that cup. That cup is perfect. And she knows that when the king lays eyes on you, having drunk that cup, he's nothing but delight. And he reaches out the golden scepter and says, I have found, or you have found favor in my sight. And that's why we do communion every single week. Because we never want to forget that truth. It's an exchange. And the story of Esther helps us understand a little bit about what that is. But the truth is, we'll go through life never fully knowing. But we get to explore it. That's grace. And that's the journey that God invites us on. He invites us to come and taste and to eat. Are you ready to come and taste and eat? Do you want that? I know I want that. I know I want to taste Jesus.